Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Blit, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. And the truth shall set you free. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. We offer you the bond of family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. Um, what do I say? What up? What up? And <laughs> what up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Wesley and I'm here with my older brother. Your what? And today we are talking about 1979 Ridley Scott's Star Beast. <laughs> Star Beast? Is that like the caffeinated version of Alien? It's the original title for Dan O'Banion's script. No way. Star Beast? Yep. That's pretty epic. I think that should be resurrected. Wait, didn't yeah. they do Alien Resurrection? They did. There's a multitude of alien titles. Yeah. Can you just recap them for me, please? Because I can't keep <laughs> right. them all straight in my head. Alien. First and foremost, Aliens, James Cameron. My guess is for most people, the canon ends right around there. Alien 3, directed by David Fincher. Alien Resurrection by uh, Jean-Pierre Junot, who was uh, the, previously the director of Amelie, and uh, that one was written in part by Joss Whedon of Buffy fame. We had, uh, there was talk of an Alien 5 done by the guy who did uh, District 9, Neil Blomkamp, and that was in development for a while until Ridley Scott was like, you know what, I, I kind of want to keep going with this whole prequel thing because Ridley Scott, director of Alien, went back in and did Prometheus, met with uh, mixed reactions and reviews and persisted and forged ahead. And we got Alien Covenant. And so there's talk of one more as to whether or not he will make that, given the kind of negative reaction to both Prometheus and uh, and Covenant and their sort of different takes and direction changes in the Alien universe. We'll see if that ever happens. But sadly, it looks like Neil Blomkamp's Alien 5 isn't going to happen. And that was going to feature the return of Ripley and uh, another character that maybe would, in, in a Terminator Dark Fate sense, kind of erase some of the subsequent uh, events and just kind of pick up as a direct sequel to Aliens. Dude, this is like your jam. Yeah. So in context, it's 1979. Yep. I'm not even born, so this is your territory. Go. Yeah, you know, it was me. I was toddling around at three years old. This is... Two summers after Star Wars hit in a big way, sci-fi was all the rage behind the scenes in Hollywood. Everybody was jumping on and trying to fast track their best sci-fi scripts. And in some cases, their only sci-fi script, which is how Star Beast got rushed into production. Dan O'Banion, who wrote the script, uh, put together two elements. One was this is basically a space truckers kind of script. And he mixed that with a World War II airplane cargo plane besieged by gremlins idea that he had and created what essentially became the alien script and he changed the title because he didn't love star beast obviously there's a 
direct connotation with Star Wars there, but he found that the word alien recurred so thoroughly and often in the script that he changed it up, and thankfully he did. So it starts with the script, and then when did Ridley Scott get involved? Uh, fairly late in the game, but he was instrumental, certainly. But he went to the studio, and they gave him a budget of, I think it was $4.2 million, which is no small thing. Uh, he went back to the drawing board, quite literally, came back with this massive array of storyboards, which he basically storyboarded from top to bottom. Uh, the studio was so impressed that they doubled the budget to $8.4 million. That's a pretty sizable sum in 1980. And so, yeah, so they were off to the races. And I think one of the key reasons is because they were working with a person that Ridley Scott called in his entire career only one of two true originals that he encountered. And that was H.R. Geiger, artist, and his designs were unlike anything pretty much anyone had ever seen. His designs of the alien creature. Yes. So the alien was based on his painting, Necronomicon 4. So strikingly different from any kind of the sort of faux, creepy, cutesy, googly-eyed, you know, spaceman from Mars kind of vibe that it was just I think the creature design and the execution is what makes Alien what it is. To this day there's nothing comparable in creation there may be imitators, there may be evolutions of the xenomorph but I don't think anybody had seen anything like it then or since. The alien life form is called a xenomorph? A xenomorph. Which means what did he call it? What did Ash call it? A perfect... Uh, the perfect organism. And there's been a tremendous amount of backstory and lore created around the alien, uh, origins and things, but essentially it is the perfect killing machine, unfettered by remorse, and really hard to kill on top of that. Yeah, so resilient. I picked up stuff about it recreating a silicone outer, outer layer, and it has its acidic blood, and it grows really fast from an egg to a massive 12-foot killing machine in two days. Something like that. The growth is really is seriously exponential. But uh, kind of going back and putting on our, our ourselves in the shoes of audience goers in 1979, you know, coming off the heels of Star Wars, everybody is hungry for science fiction. And you, you know, maybe know things are not going to go well. The tagline of this movie is, in space, no one can hear you scream. And the, uh, the original trailers are pretty terrifying to this day. But you go and you see a little tiny thing jump out of an egg and latch onto Kane's face. And you're like, well, that's a kind of a scary little raccoon looking alien, alien thing. Raccoon starfish alien free mask. Yeah, ra raccoon free mask uh, alien vagina thing. <laughs> and then, and then it, it appears to die. And then a little thing, which is like a blood covered worm thing with silvery teeth pops out. And you're like, oh, that's a scary little alien magumbo little guy. And yeah, then, and then that's the most oft-recreated scene, right? For parody right? and for whatever. And and John Hurt actually recreated that scene himself in Spaceballs. That's worth looking up on YouTube. If you haven't seen Spaceballs, you suck. But um, Don't deride yeah, our and, audience. We love you. Yeah, we love you. You suck. Go see Spaceballs. You suck because we love. You know, you should really see these movies. And so people are like, they're trying to make sense as the Nostromo crew is. And so when they when they set out with the uh, micro changes in air density little gun, trying to figure out where this little guy is. That's a total faux science, right? Like Ash is just uh, like biding his time. 
I don't know that Ash knows exactly what it is at that moment either. But, you know, one of Ripley's lines later on was micro changes in air density, my ass. So, yeah, probably pretty wonky science. But they're looking for this thing. And I think for the Nostromo crew, for sure, and for the viewing audience, they had no idea what to expect. So you watched the Alien director's cut, right? Yeah. And Brett has the unlucky job of, of searching for this thing and searching for Jonesy the cat and goes into the room with all the chains. Did you note the xenomorph in full form hanging among the chains? No. So if you watch the director's cut, way up high before uh, before Brett is taken, the full form xenomorph is kind of in a fetal position hanging in the chains in full view. But because nobody has any association for it, because nobody knows that this little guy has is evolved this massive killing machine, it doesn't register until after the fact. It's right in front of you. And we're, you know, this little guy that we're looking for, the size of a cat, becomes so much more than that. See hey, that rhymes. <laughs> Poet and didn't know it. So the key to this film is suspense. And the suspense hinges largely on the fact that this is a somewhat new genre and that we have no idea what to expect from the alien life form. Right. We are learning as they learn and we are trapped as they are trapped and uh, moving toward a climax that we can't foresee. We don't know a lot of these people. Sigourney Weaver was a total unknown at the time. No way. Um, Tom Skerritt maybe was the anchor. Certainly you had uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who was a veteran actor, but nobody major, and no, no major stars anchoring this movie. Tom Skerritt was um, Dallas. Yep. So any one of them or all of them were expendable, certainly. At the time, we didn't even know who Bilbo was. Bilbo Baggins? Yeah. The Hobbit? Ian Holm as Ash was Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings movies, not in the subsequent Hobbit movies. Oh, can I say that I think that I may not have seen this in its entirety before? Oh, no. So if we time it correctly, this episode will land really close to a couple days ahead of Alien Day. What's Alien Day? Well, um, that planetoid where they responded to the distress signal would ultimately uh, develop in aliens to be, to be referred to as LV-426. So on April 26th is designated Alien Day. Do you have As any idea how much of a how dorky you got? <laughs> Last year was what the fortieth anniversary of Alien. Why April twenty sixth? LV four twenty six, the planetoid designation by the military oh in my Aliens. God. Oh my God! You're apparently not the only nerd. Nope, there's lots of them. Which is why this movie endures as a classic over forty years. It blurs the line between sci-fi and horror. But it stands up there as one of the scariest movies ever made. Yeah. And you have to appreciate it for what it is as an adult. And and uh, what I had resisted for so long with mom and dad's movies is how, oh, well, this is the first movie of its kind. I didn't care. And now as an adult, I do kind of embrace what's different about Alien and how it stands up and what its successes and failures are 40 years on. It's not, a, it's not a perfect, faultless movie. It was a relatively low-budget movie that just sticks with people. And again, I think it's because of the alien design in particular and how viscerally terrifying it is. It feels pretty flawless to me, and I think I relate to the characters because they behave very logically and scientifically. Not that I'm a scientist, but I didn't feel like they had a lot of false notes or false movements like idiots do in horror films when they go off looking for cats. Oh wait, Ripley spends like five minutes looking for a stupid cat. Yeah. 
Like, that was the only false note in this movie. That someone so commanding. Of course you knew it was coming. You don't go looking for a cat in a horror movie when there's a killing machine on the loose. Nobody knew what it was. He was a little squirmy guy who would nip at your ankles. He was like the alien version of a chihuahua. But Homeboy goes up into the air vents and then disappears without a trace. They didn't look, they were done looking for Jonesy after that, man, when Dallas went in there. So that part is hugely suspenseful. And, and, and part of that is because of the revolutionary uh, computer graphics of the time. The little beepy dot, man, how oh, cool was that? Yeah, the beepy dot. So, <laughs> <laughs> but so suspenseful, even, if, even in its uh, minimalism. Yeah, definitely scary because you have no, like like Dallas, they have no better clue of what's what's happening, what's about to happen than he does. All they know is it's getting closer. It does feel so, very technologically advanced. Like even now, it feels like future tech. Looking at that stuff, I mean, not the chunky, not the the CRT tube TVs exactly. all over the place. Like that doesn't. Yeah. But the in terms of their overall science, they feel they feel super advanced. I mean, what year does this taste? take place in or is it a parallel universe i think it's about 150 years in the future at least you know for its time which would be closer to 100 years now right but not getting too far away from the air vent scene in dallas when i sat down and watched this with the sneak as sort of her horror movie training experience several years ago uh, dallas's death scene was really nerve-wracking for her and so kind of dispelling that now obviously with the ability to pause you should go back and watch the Dallas death scene in slow motion or frame by frame. It's basically, he's got the flashlight, he turns, and the alien gives him jazz hands. And then we cut. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. And so you watch the the uh, director's cut, as is your privilege, um, you know, decades down the line. But the viewing audience in 1977 wasn't treated to Dallas's death. What do you mean? Dallas doesn't when die? When she later, later re- rediscovers Dallas? Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's not in the theatrical cut at all. So where, what is that chamber, and why does she go down there? I could see why it was expendable and they cut it out, because it didn't feel uh, necessary, it didn't feel motivated, I didn't know where she was or why she went there. Not really sure, but this leads me to the point that in the alien canon, if you're going to proceed whatsoever, Aliens is absolutely essential. It is a different kind of movie altogether. But Aliens, as a companion, uh, drastically uh, expands, I don't know about improves upon, but expands some of these themes where uh, even the stuff that we didn't get to see in the, in the theatrical cut of Alien is revisited and sort of explained. Worthy successor, but a completely different movie. Does it pick up where Alien left off with Sigourney Weaver returning to Earth? It does, technically speaking. Again, I would also watch that director's cut. There's a strange confluence of factors which I think contributed to Alien, and it's rich enough so that it, it definitely can be expanded. But we're working with basically a guy in a suit and, and a scary monster movie that just had, he pitched it as Jaws in space, which is not that far from the truth, except you can't get out of the ocean for this one. Yeah, you're definitely lost at sea. The sea of space. They had such a unique creature design that they needed someone who could be equally unusual looking in the suit. They found this kid, this artist, in a pub somewhere 
and he was six foot eight, six nine, like an NBA player, but really skinny. Combine that with uh, Geiger's design. Don't show a tremendous amount of him, but keep him sort of shrouded in mystery, like Bruce in Jaws. Bruce? Yep, Bruce. The shark in Jaws was named for Spielberg's lawyer at the time, which I don't know <laughs> is racist or not. So does this qualify as a cat and mouse movie, even though the cat is one of the mice? Initially, it's definitely monster in the house. I think Alien stands as a sheer horror movie about the non-human, non-navigable presence. You can't anticipate or formulate a plan of attack against an enemy who's entirely alien and foreign. You have blue-collar, hard-working people, and some of them scientifically inclined, for sure, that have to sort of band together and as their only defense. And the herd, when the herd defense fails and they're on their own, they, have, they turn to the only thing that they can manipulate, which is their familiar human environment, to throw everything at the wall to try to find something to stop this unstoppable, unkillable creature. One of the most terrifying video games I've ever played was Alien Isolation. And, spoiler, that alien cannot physically be killed. And so you basically spend your time creeping around this massive uh, ship. And when the alien comes, you better hide or get out of the way. Because if it sees you, you're dead. And it's terrifying knowing that you don't have a choice, that you don't have a chance against this creature. You have to rely on your resources and the things you do to avoid being killed. But it's just the unstoppable force. Right. So it's human resilience and the triumph of the human mind. I suppose so. And just innate claustrophobic terror. Yeah, I and mean. And darkness. Yeah, not only are they cornered, not only are they holed up with this creature, but they're in space. No escape. But viscerally, despite having grown up with this movie, when you know what's coming, I still find this movie scary on a very basic hunter-prey premise. Hunter be hunted? Yep, but I think its stamp on American uh, cinema is indelible. What do you say to people now if they're like, hmm, Alien, never seen it? Um, I would say that it's, I, I think it's kind of impossible to not understand the concept of a face hugger or a chest burster. Because it's such or, a part of pop culture? Yeah, it can't be avoided, but you have, so in that way you have to watch it with the 1979 context. You have to understand that at the time, nobody understood what was happening. They thought maybe the face hugger was the alien and okay, the alien got him. Oh, now there's a chest burster and now there's a little guy with teeth running around and then it becomes a xenomorph and that stage of progression was something nobody anticipated. No, As a matter of fact, the cast of Alien never got a chance to see Badejo in the alien costume until it was time to film their scenes with him. When Jonesy emerges and Brett is trying to pick him up, they kept a dog on set, a German shepherd, and they had him behind a blind so that the cat kind of came out to be picked up and then they removed the blind so he was face to face with a dog and he started hissing and that was his reaction to seeing the alien on film. Does that make sense? Man, was that creepy to watch Brett's death play out on the cat's face. Yeah, so that was essentially what they did to the cast. They, they had no context for what they were going into or what they were going up against on film. So you got a lot of genuine reactions 
when uh, Lambert is coated in in Kane's blood during the chest bursting scene. She had no idea that was going to happen uh, on the extended take because I think they only did one take of that with four cameras. She was sprayed with blood and she threw herself back so violently that her feet came out from under her. And even though her lower half is obscured by a desk, you can see her feet in frame as she falls. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, you know, Yafet Koto, who plays Parker, uh, was told to antagonize Sigourney Weaver on the set off camera oh my so God. that there would be visual, visible tension. He does not shut up about that bonus. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a Kubrickian uh, style approach to filmmaking where the actors had to undergo kind of a rigorous, intense, emotional process in the same way that the viewer ultimately would. Wasn't an easy shoot, I don't imagine. And even though they were probably on the studio lot, the sets were probably fairly confined and claustrophobic inducing, claustrophobia inducing. So in that way, you have to consider the context of this movie as it was released in 1979. And sure, it may not be as explosive or as much as a surprise to a, a virgin viewer in 2020 or beyond, but uh, definitely some great things to experience if you can get past the tropes that this movie established. And it is not fair to judge this movie based on those tropes in retrospect, if that makes sense. Nope. If you're so used to seeing the alien burst out of the chest, you can't fault Alien, Alien's chest burster scene, for being unoriginal. Oh, right. Because at the time it was completely unanticipated. Yep, and no one knew what was happening, and it was horrifying. So <laughs> that that still, scene stands. Even anticipating it, even knowing it was going to happen, it was terrifying. It's a terrifying concept. Yeah, I think the sort of claustrophobic uh, aspect that you were talking about really works where you can't see around every corner, where there's no open expanse, where you would fight the, the alien in like a video game in a boss scene where you can run around behind the crate. There was nothing like that. It was all hallways where you'd have to scoot to yep. the side to avoid another person. Yep. Right. A lot of it was told. We saw uh Brett's death scene, like you said, on the cat's face. There were a couple of shots of the cat with the alien in the background where it's just a looming, hulking shape or shadows when uh, when Lambert is about to die. Um, the uh, the shot right. that uh, Kelly has a problem with in all the monster movies where for some reason uh, one of the w women character has to die like between the legs. <laughs> That shot was actually filmed for a completely different scene in the movie where the, the alien appendage or arm or penis or whatever it is, that was actually Ian Holm as uh, Ash. That was through Ash's legs from a completely different scene in the movie that they stuck in there that wasn't used. Oh, really? And I don't know if that adhered to the weird women dying with things between their legs kind of trope or if it established it or what. Yeah. I feel like the the robot among us trope maybe started here too like the Battlestar Galactica thing yeah by the way why does he want to kill her with all of his artificial intelligence why does he kill her with a rolled up magazine yeah, he <laughs> has been short short circuiting by then and that it's very strange <laughs> and yet equally horrifying he's going to kill her until he's going to shove a magazine down her throat until she dies from it that's horrifying that's some malfunctioning robot shit <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how else you get there. Um, so to cap it off, Ripley escapes in the shuttle. Yep. And then she gets and then she launches off. And then the the tension or the terror comes from the suspense of whether or not she's going to clear the ship before it self-destructs. Yes. 
but we know that she's not scot-free. I mean, that's not, that's a trope that long precedes Is it? Has, alien. has it been established beforehand? That the alien's going to have its last attempt? I don't know. This is what Ridley Scott called the fourth act uh, after clearing the Nostromo's destruction. What, is it a given that the alien is going to be on board or does that trope exist because alien first manufactured it? I mean, you tell me, I think I because know. watching it in 2020 for practically the first time, I was like, all right, so where is it? Where is it hiding? <laughs> When's it going to come out? So I think that it had gone through its life cycle in a sense that it was attempting at that point to hibernate. Because I don't know that it was hiding. Eventually, when she kind of draws it out, it's like, all right, who woke me up? I'm going to kill you. But it wasn't looking to destroy everything in its path or going on the rampage at that point. So it was like, yeah, I was wondering if it was like injured and why it was kind of like hiding out and not on the offensive. And then also why whatever gas it was that she shot at it, which looked like the gas from the Nostromo, affected it in such a way that it basically smoked it out of its hiding place. Yeah, it just disturbed it. And it, uh, it just like so, tickled it. And so he crawled out. Uh, yeah. And so now, in a, and obviously in, a, in the coronavirus uh, age, you know, ha we have to note that that Ash breached the quarantine, that the alien, uh, that the contaminant got in because he breached the quarantine and that six of them died. And then Ripley was able to save herself by wearing a mask. In her underpants, as we all are. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm in my day jammies. Okay. Yeah, supposedly you're supposed to get dressed in order to be productive. Yeah, you but, go from day jammies to night jammies. But I, I think that the the fight, I guess you can call it that, for you know, ultimately, was even in a more confined space, and she was at her own, uh, in her bare skin, and and had, really didn't have any resources against it, and she was able to innovate and find a way to uh, to get rid of the alien. Yeah, certainly makes her feel more vulnerable. But that is not the way that this movie was was going to end. Ridley Scott himself, not just an idea, but he was going with the ending where uh, Ripley climbs into her pod and everything is fine and is about to, and, and notes the alien, tries to slam the door. He wrenches the door open and bites her head off. And the movie ends. Wait, in what version? In, in the version before this movie was filmed, that was the ending until Fox started to have some trepidation and didn't want to kill the heroine outright. So but that was the working ending. That. As late as possible. I don't think so. Whoa. It always strikes me that because tragedies end in death, it always strikes me that horror films end in triumph. It has become a trope. I mean, there's got to be some catharsis, right? It's, it, it is a curious thing why we are attracted to and enjoy horror to put the viewer in emotional distress for enjoyment is a weird thing. Right? Does it speak to the to the the psychopathy or sociopathy in us? I don't know. I mean, maybe there's but, a um, yeah, maybe it appeals to a sadist in us, but I also think it allows us to be so much happier about where we are, comfy in our may, in our bed or in, on our couch. Yeah, but there is a cathar cathartic aspect to at least one person surviving at the end. Right. 
Alien was pretty good, man. I think it stands up. Yeah, I think it stands pretty well because I think those crappier horror movies that aren't as timeless, I think you can tell. And I think that's why they, they aren't regarded, uh, you know, hugely after the fact. There were things in the 70s like Don't Look Now and these masterpieces in Suspiria that look dated and look crappy. And Alien is not one of those movies. It achieves a kind of a timelessness that helps us to enjoy it without being distracted by all the crap. You know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt that it's set in the future. And while some of the tech may look like the best that 70s tech has to offer, it still is kind of an alternate reality that allows us to suspend disbelief. Right on. So let me guess. Totally. Totally. Um, for a number of reasons, for its place, for its historical place in movies, uh, for the horror genre, for the science fiction genre, genre, as an antithesis to Star Wars, as a movie that grew on me uh, as I grew emotionally and uh, became one that I love and for, you know, its contribution and kind of defines what makes good horror and bad horror and that all things in the horror genre are not created equal. You should see Alien, even if you don't like it, examine why you don't like it and compare it to other horror movies that you do like and try to find out what the appeal is. Man, you're such a nerd. It's hilarious. Is there a name for alien fans? You know, like... Like Xenoheads? Yeah. I don't think so. Xenohead sounds pretty good. I mean, the alien basically is a huge head. Yeah, a huge penis head. If you look at any of Geiger's other works, you're like, wow, that's a penis. <laughs> and a vagina. Like, it's... The, the, the xenomorph design is, like, the less the least phallic of his designs. Really? It's pretty shocking. Like it's unsettling in a in a in a way that you can be, if I saw it I'd be like, "Well, that this guy's a creep." But that that kind of creepishness vaguely reined in is exactly what they needed for this design. Yeah, it's like very it's alien but somehow the phallus humanizes it. Dude, look up just look up HR Giger's work and anything you see, you'll be like, "Oh, that's sex." All right, well, you have your assignment. That's our talk on Alien from 1979. Give us a call. Let us know what you think about it. 818-835-0473. Email us or whatever, movies at gmail.com. So we hope you enjoyed this one on Alien, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B, and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Hass Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.